We're looking at Galatians chapter 4 today. <laughs> I heard that deep sound. We're down because of summer attendance. I was going to preach on humility, but I'll wait for a bigger crowd. <laughs> I did hear a cute joke. A lady walks in to return a pair of eyeglasses she had purchased for her husband and said, I want to return these. And, and, and the storekeeper said that, at the eyeglass place said, why, what's wrong? And she said, well, I bought these for my husband and he's not seeing things my way. So. Galatians, uh, I love what Woodrow Wilson said. When you read your Bible, you will know that it's the word of God. Amen. When you read your Bible, you'll know it's the word of God. It's supernatural, it's powerful, it's sharper than a two-edged sword. So we look today at Galatians chapter four. We're looking at a book Paul wrote 55 years or so AD. Now AD, the word anno donami is what it means, but that, that, that means the year of our Lord. But we remember it simply as after the death of Christ or the duration of Christ. So he wrote this book. To the people who had erred and slipped away from the simple preaching of the cross and salvation by grace and faith alone and had uh, listen to the Judaizers, and so Paul's rebuking the teaching of the Judaizers and the, the Galatians for following this false teaching that there are the things you need to do to be saved, like keep the law and be circumcised. And today, as we said earlier, this church is located in southern Turkey. It was a Roman province at the time Paul had traveled there. Paul traveled there in 47 or 48 years, about eight years before writing this book. He had traveled there on his first missionary journey with Barnabas, and they'd started several churches. And that was 20 years after Paul was converted. Remember, he was converted after Christ between 33 and 36 AD. And so now he's writing this church and rebuking them and reinforcing justification by faith. We're looking at chapter 4, verse 12. Stand with me as we read from God's word. Brethren, I beseech you, I beseech you, be as I am, for I am as ye are. Ye have not injured me at all. You know how through infirmity of the flesh I preached the gospel unto you at first. And my temptation, which was in my flesh, you despised not, nor rejected, but received me as an angel, an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. Where is then the blessedness you spake of? I bear your record that if it had been possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and have given them to me. Am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? They zealously affect you, but not well. Yea, they would exclude you that ye might affect them. But it is good to be zealously affected always in a good thing, and not only when I am present with you. My little children, of whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you, I desire to be present with you now and to change my voice, for I stand in doubt of you. God bless us as we take a look in your book for a walk in the world. We need you every hour. We certainly need you today. And God, I pray that what I have to say will be of you and from you and fitting for the folks today. Bless now, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Paul appeals to them in several ways. First as a brother, then as an angel. He says, I was your angel. And then he appeals to them uh, as a father, as, as well as uh, an enemy. Uh, he talks about how I'm not your enemy, but they sort of label him that because he's preaching to them the same thing he preached before, just rebuking them. You notice in verse 19, he says, uh, brethren, brethren. 
a term of endearment. As later he says, my little children. He loved these people. I love, what I love about Paul is how he loved God's people. I've been reading a book this week, passed down to my daughter-in-law, Praying with Paul, and how Paul prays for other believers that he's come across in his life. He wants them to do well. You know, I think that's interesting how he prayed for other believers to grow and do well in God. And he says here, be like me. Be like me. And he goes on to say, you haven't injured me. You haven't injured me. You, you've not, that's translated offended in Acts 25, 11. You haven't offended me. It's translated to do someone wrong. It's translated to, to be unjust towards someone. He said, this is not the problem. You're not hurting me. You haven't offended me. But they were wrong. They were hurting themselves because they were believing a false teaching. Now he says, be like me. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I love this passage. You know, we, we are stuck in our ways, and sometimes we kind of get in a rut. And we go about our business not thinking that we all have different backgrounds. We're all from different places in the world. No two of us are the same. And what I loved about Paul is he tried very hard in verses 19, 1 Corinthians 9 through 23. He tried very hard to be all things to all people. I love that about him. Look at what it says here in 1 Corinthians 9, 19. He says, For though I be free from all men, yet I have made myself servant unto all, that I might gain the more. And unto the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might gain the Jews, to them that are under the law, as under the law, and that I might gain them that are under the law, to them that are without the law, outside the law that means Gentiles, as without the law, being not without the law to God, but under the law of Christ, that I might gain them that are without the law. To the weak I became as weak, that I might gain the weak. I am made all things to all men that I might by all means save some. And this I do for the gospel's sake. Think about that. Paul tried to be all things to all people. Now that's virtually impossible. But I, I noticed when Jesus Christ reached people, he identified with them. You know, he would identify with them. And he reached out to all types of people, poor and rich, little and big. And we find his ministry was so diverse to all kinds of people. And I think a successful Christian tries to be all things to all people. When I talk to someone who's poor, I'll talk about when I grew up. And for two years, my dad didn't have a job. And I remember our, our sofa had big holes in it. And I was in, embarrassed to invite anyone to our home because of how our home looked. And my mom had a very limited amount of, 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 of budget to feed all nine of us. And I remember she'd take one pound of hamburger and make this goulash stuff. And, and uh, it kind of was like that a little bit at times with not much meat. I'm a meat lover. And I remember I, I didn't want to invite anybody over because... The meal was so simple and with so many things that she had put in to, to nourish us, but we never had steak growing up. Not one time growing up did I have steak. Christmas time when my dad was working, we'd go to the smorgasbord. It was a Swedish place. The one time a year we ate out. We'd go on vacation to Florida. My dad was working. We had a week's vacation. We didn't eat out once. We ate sandwiches in the car on the way. We're all crammed in that station wagon. I remember the old Studebaker I told you about last week. I'd look through and see the road. My brothers always made me sit in that side so I'd fall out, I think. It, it, so I, I, I try to identify with that person, you know. 
And, and that's hard to do, but you can find common ground with so many people. And do you knock on someone's door and they have a dog? Oh, we used to have a door like that, a dog like that. And, and I shot it when I was mad. No, but we, we, we identify with people. And we have to learn to do that. You're not an, you're not an island. You have, you're connected to people. And if you're a person who has a financial means, you can then reach people and, and identify with them. If you find someone who's been an athlete, you can identify with that. And you try to do that, and Paul did that so well. I love that about Paul. And he, was, he says here, brethren, he, he says, I perceive, you know, that, uh, you know, going back to our text in verse 13, he said, I perceive, I think that uh, because of my infirmity, it's caused a little problem with you. I preached the gospel to you first when I was very sick. My infirmity, he calls it. The gospel's our word evangelized. So I evangelized you when I was very, very sick. My infirmity, now he'll talk in a moment about it, being his eyesight, but there were other things. Verse 14, he says, then I know, not only spoke to you as a brother, brethren in verse 13, then in verse 14, or verse 12, verse 14, let me go back. Brethren, verse 12, verse 14, he says, I was received by you as an angel. And my temptation, we know James tells us that can mean trial, testing, and he's, he's going through a hard time in his life. He says, during my temptation, which was in my flesh, my trial in the flesh, you despise not nor rejected, but receive me as an angel. And that's the great word angelos, and you know the word angel. It's also translated in your Bible, messenger. He said, I was your messenger and you received me that way, like you'd receive an angel. So they had respected him. He was their brother and he was their angel. And, and he, was, he, he was having a trial in the flesh. What was that trial? Well, different opinions on it. Some believe he had malaria, which was a common disease. Some say, well, being stoned, maybe he had a lot of other problems. We do know Paul was very sick. He did have the eye problem he talks about in this text. But look at 2 Corinthians now, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And some believe he wrote the Galatians from Corinth. But in chapter 10 of 2 Corinthians, verse 10, Lenski, a great scholar, said, a sick man is rarely impressive. A sick man is rarely impressive. And in Jewish culture, you know, Jews look down upon people with infirmities. Well, if you were crippled, you, had a, you walked with a limp or you had an illness, they thought that was judgment from God. And here's Paul, the apostle, once a second generation Pharisee, well-educated man, but now look at him, he's physically not very impressive. 2 Corinthians 10, 10 says this, for his letters say they are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. It's translated in your Bible, despised. He, his speech was not good, he, he, not, not powerful. He was weak. And, and all these things, no doubt, in, in Jewish society were a hindrance to him. Look at chapter 12, chapter 12. I, I love this about Paul. You know, here's a little guy. We know Paul was little. We know that he was weak and sick. He had trouble with his eyes. There's times he had to have someone else write. He dictated scripture. We know he, had, he calls it the infirmity. He talks about the thorn in the flesh. 
his eye problem, but there were other things. Look at 2 Corinthians 10, 10. And this is something I want you to, or 12, 7, excuse me. We already looked at 10, 10. You need to mark this in your Bible. Unless I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of revelation, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh. You know what God does? He allows things in our life to just bring us down to earth. So we don't think we're something special. There's always something plaguing us. All of us have a cross to carry. Sometimes it gets heavy. I don't know what your cross is, and some of your things you won't even share because they're private, but you have a cross to carry, and that gets difficult. God allows for things in our life to keep us humble. Do you know what? When you're going through problems, you're talking to God a lot more than you usually do because you have problems in your life. And he's getting your attention. And Paul says, to keep me, here's Paul. You could imagine how simple it would be for Paul to think highly of himself. All the churches he started, scripture he wrote, being a highly educated Pharisee, teaching, uh, being taught under Gamiel and all these things. Man, Paul really had a resume. Could you imagine getting a resume at church? I speak several languages more than everyone else you know. I speak Latin, I speak Greek, I speak Hebrew. And you'd look at that resume and think, man, this guy's been trained, he's got a doctorate degree. You know, here he is, he started all these churches and wrote scripture. You'd say, man, or today maybe equivalent to, not, not equivalent, but much, much more powerful than writing books, but he's an author. And you'd say, what a resume. That was Paul's resume. And he says, to keep me, uh, to, you know, he, he said, to, to buffet me, Satan buffeted me, so I wouldn't be exalted above measure. And he said, I I asked God three times in the next verse. I asked God three times to take this away. He didn't. He said, my grace is sufficient. And look what this next verse says. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Do you know the times God can use you more than ever is when you are weak and you're so dependent on him? Here's frail little Paul, and God uses him mightily. I remember when I was a young guy, I was so energetic and ambitious, I knocked on every door, every door, including officers' quarters on Fort Davis, Fort Gulick, and Fort Sherman, Panama. I got in trouble, not serious trouble, but I was called out and called in and everything else. I was called things too, I'm sure. But I was, I had all this energy but a lot of times I think, am I depending on my own strength? Because there were times, you know, people weren't saved and people weren't, weren't growing. And I'm thinking, you know, what am I doing wrong? And maybe sometimes I was depending too much on Dan and not enough, not enough on the Lord. Paul says here, his grace is sufficient for my strength. This is, he's quoting Jesus, what Jesus says to him after he prays. These are the words of the Lord. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Most glad, therefore, I will rather glory in my infirmities that the power of God may rest upon me. So praise God for the trials you go through. The physical problems you have, thank God for them. The financial problems you had, can you thank God? Be thankful in all things. Rejoice evermore. You have to learn that. To be a successful Christian, you have to learn to rejoice in difficulty. That's the hardest thing. That's where the rubber meets the road, they say. Can I rejoice in that? Had a great vacation, drove all the way down there. My wife laid down on the floor of our van the whole trip down, the whole trip back. She's sick. And 
And uh, I thought, you know, I'd just like to just go in and get a junk food burger, but my wife can't eat that. I'd like to just go into Hardee's. I'm, I'm a guy who would, I could live on, on fast food restaurants. I, there's nothing wrong with fast foods in my mind, except they're just bad for you, you know. But yeah, you think like that, and then you think, hey, rejoice uh, right now. I've got a real sugar problem. Rejoice in those things because they do draw you closer to the Lord. He says, I rather glory, my friends, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, reproaches, and necessities, and persecutions, and distresses. That's the word about the narrowing of the spine is the Greek word there. For Christ's sake, for when I am weak, what does he say? When I am weak, what? Then I am strong. You can be weak in the flesh. Be without energy, struggling financially, but those are the times that God's strength can be revealed in you. There's nothing that's more of a blessing to us than to know somebody who's struggling severely. And you go up and you try and encourage them. They say, praise the Lord, God sure is good. And you're like, God's good? That person, what they're going through. God is good. Even in the valley. He's good. He's good. And so Paul, he understood. He says, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Back to our text. He says, you didn't despise me. You didn't reject me. But you treated me as an angel, as a messenger of God, as it's translated elsewhere, messenger. I was God's messenger. And you treated me that way. Then in verse 14, it says, he says, here, verse 15, he says, you know, the, where's the blessing you just spoke of? You, you spoke of blessing. He said, there was a time you'd have plucked out your own eyes and given, given it to me. Now, that's a hyperbole. God didn't want you to pluck out your eye for someone else, just like he didn't want you to cut your hand off or pluck your eye out if you offend someone. Those are hyperboles to illustrate the importance of things. He said, you would have done anything for me. You'd have given me your eyesight. That's how you viewed me. And so he didn't quite understand the way they were acting now. You'd have plucked out your eyes. He says later, have I become your enemy? A rhetorical question. He says, I travailed in birth for you. That's a metaphor. Paul didn't carry a baby in his stomach, but he, he understood the difficulty in bringing people to Christ. But the difficulty he had, A.T. Pearson tells a story. I like this story. It's kind of cute. He's, he was out asking, and back in the day, in the early years, of Christianity, uh, modern Christianity, a lot of people would go out and solicit help for, for poor people, collect money from Christians they knew to help people, different causes they'd have, you know. And Pearson was asking for money for a Christian cause and a rich fella said to him, you know, when you die, I've got the perfect title for your funeral. It's the beggar has died. And Pearson responded, just so wise. He said, quote the rest of that verse. He was carried off to Abraham's bosom. And uh, he, he was someone who cared about people and collected for people. Here's Paul, and he's got this thorn in the flesh, as it's called in, in chapter 12, verse 7. He makes all these sacrifices for the good of these people. And then, rather than being received today as a, as a brother or, or a, as, a, as a, an angel, they re, they're receiving him as an enemy. Verse 16, he says, Am I become your enemy because I tell you the truth? I'm not your enemy because I tell you the truth. Proverbs 27, 6, faithful are the wounds of a friend. I have that written down here. The best thing you can do for your best friend, for your spouse, 
for someone you're close to is let them know when they're wrong. Silence is called golden, but sometimes it's just yellow. You're not a good spouse, you're not a good friend, you're not a good neighbor if you aren't willing to say to someone who's close to you, hey, what you're doing is wrong. In church, in our Christian family, we need accountability. Now, we do not need spiritual policemen who go around rebuking everybody in the church. I've been there and heard that and done that and experienced that, don't like that. We don't need that. That's not what I'm talking about. But those you are close to, you have an obligation to confront them and say, what you're doing is wrong. It breaks my heart. I, I have just such wonderful grandkids. I call them great grandkids, even though they're not great grandkids, but they're all great to me. And one of my had caught doing a little something wrong. And I had to go to my son and say, hey, listen, you know, I love, you know, how I love your kids. And I've never had to come to you about your son, but he did this. And he said, thanks for telling me, Dad. If I were worth anything, I would have to speak up. When people from my loins, obviously, one time we're, we, you know, uh, I, I, we had the, the pool. We had one night where all, there were 17 people at the pool and they were all mine. Not another person in there. We were just having a blast. We had such a great time. But when you have a lot of time and a week of excitement, there are things sometimes that are not right and then you have to do the right thing. You know, I know dads that will not correct their children. Shame on you. It's cowardice. You aren't your children's friend. You're their parent. You can be their friend after they're married and you can help babysit the grandkids. That's when you can be their friend. But you're their parent and it's your job to tell them when they're wrong. And sometimes it's hard to do that, but you have to do that. Amen. And if you have a Christian friend who's wrong, you are obligated to correct them. I, you know, I'm not saying go correct people you hardly know. I mean, you could spend all day on your street, couldn't you? I'm not saying correct church people you hardly speak to. I, I like Dale Carnegie. I don't know if Dale, I think he is a Christian. He wrote a book, How to Win Friends and Influence People back in the 30s. My dad said, you need to read this. A preacher friend of mine said, Dan, sarcasm is not a spiritual gift. Because I can be really sarcastic. I don't do it much here, but boy, I'm capable. And I read that book, How to Encourage and Say Positive Things and Lift People Up. I was like, wow, wow, you know, to encourage people. And so when you come to church, uh, I don't know who said, said this, but for every 10 times you, uh, you know, for every 10 times you meet with people and talk to them. Only one of the 10 should be a, 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 thing, a time where you have to confront them and rebuke them. So if you're going to rebuke someone in the church, you have better lifted them up about nine times first. Because all of us have been members of church where you had someone who went around. I used to go to a guy, you know, used to go to church with a guy that was always telling me, questioning my call to preach. And I never understood that. I knew I was called. And he was also a missionary. And he would always say things to me. And it kind of got to me. Not this bad, but, you know, it just bothered me. Because I knew God called me. And I, I knew God called me to preach. And I've been doing it 40 years. And I think God knew what he was doing when he called me. But he was always doing that. And he never, ever said anything encouraging to me. And it doesn't matter who he is or what he said. My point is, I never thought a lot of him because he was always that way. But what about the guy that comes up and pats you on the back and says, you're gonna be a great preacher one day when you're 20 something. 
Boy, that's meaningful. I can remember people in my early experience, and I've never forgotten them. We had some people, I'd come home on furlough, and they just took over my life. Uh, yeah, they were just great people. And it's a good, this positive thing. I had a rental property, and he came and said, I'm going to take care of your rental property for you. He didn't give me any quite choice in the matter. He said, I'm going to, I'm going to take care of I'm going to do the leases and take care because you never kick the people out, and you get some bums in there, and I want to take over that. So he took over that, and uh, they would have us open. You know, they just totally monopolized our lives, but we needed it, and we loved it. Such an encouragement. He was my Barnabas. We need to have more Barnabases in the church, you know, encouragers. When we all come to church, and we do a good job here, we have a friendly church. But when we come to church, isn't it great when someone says something positive or encouraging? Huh? I had someone say something encouraging to me today. It's a blessing. It's good. And so Paul, he's not their enemy. And I got way off the subject. He, he's their friend. But he had to say to them, you are wrong. In verse 14, he said, I'm, am I your enemy because I've told you the truth? You can't get mad at your Sunday school teacher when he says something that offends you. You just need to get stronger. In verse 17, he, he says, in verse 16, he says, in my ear, and in verse 17, they zealously affect you. The word zealous and jealous, you know, are related. They come from the same Greek word. Jealousy and zealousy can be good or they can be bad. In this case, they were bad. These Judaizers are zealous and they affected them and made them zealous for the wrong thing. And he, he says here in verses 17 and 18, he says, when they're around you, you know, they, they don't really do anything for you. And when I come to town, boy, they, they start to really talk to you about how important it is to be circumcised. Look at 6, 12, and 13. One page over. Chapter 6, verses 12 and 13. They'd exclude them and isolate them and do the wrong thing. But in 6.12, as many as desire to make a fair show in the flesh, they constrain you to be circumcised. Only lest they should suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. They didn't want to be persecuted by Jews. So they said, let's all get circumcised. You need to be circumcised. Why? They were afraid of the persecution from Jewish society. And let me tell you this. We don't know about persecution today. There are believers in the world that do. But the Jews understood it because when you got saved in Jewish society, you were an outcast. They wouldn't sell you things at the market. They wouldn't let you, wouldn't let you sell at the marketplace. They'd ostracize you. They kicked them all out of the synagogue and they stoned Paul and they treated believers terrible. They killed Stephen. And a lot of people were afraid to say, I'm a Christian and I'm no longer under the law because they knew what Jews would do to them. And we live as though we're persecuted because we don't get the promotion at work. We don't understand persecution like many Christians do. He says, for neither themselves who are circumcised keep the law, but desire to have you circumcised that they should glory in your flesh. But God forbid that I should glory save in the cross. The only thing we should glory in is the cross of Jesus Christ. I'm nothing, you're nothing, but the cross of Jesus is everything. Without him, we'd be miserable, lost sinners. And finally, he talks to him as a father. He says in verses 19 and 20, My little children, of whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you. Until Christ be formed in you. My little children. In 3.7, we're called the children of Abraham. 
In 325, the children of God. God, Paul calls his converts his little children. Verse in 428, the children of promise. In 431, the children of bondage. And we know there are also children of the devil. Nothing burns me up more than when Hollywood gets involved and tries to act like they have some principles or standards in their lives. Years ago, they wrote a song. We are the world. We're all God's children. I thought, that's a lie right from hell. We're not all God's children. Only born again people are God's children. Everyone else is the children of, the children of the devil, the Bible says. Those folks are on the way to hell. They can sing about God all they want to, but their lives are very obviously not lives that are spent living for God. Study their children. Study their home life. I mean, it's amazing. You don't want to pick on Hollywood too bad, but they're not the children of God. You have to be born again and repent of your sins to be a child of God. And if you haven't done that today, you're going to hell. Hell is real. Hell is, it is a legitimate place where lost people go. But he said, here he says, until Christ be formed in you. The word form is the word morpho. You say, why is that important? Well, here's why it's important. When you read Matthew 17, they were transformed, Elijah and Moses. That's the word metamorphosis. When you read Romans 12, 1 and 2, that we need to be transformed, that's the word metamorphosis. What's a metamorphosis, pastor? Well, that little caterpillar crawls up into a tree and spins a cocoon. He goes in with all that fur and 14 legs. He comes out a completely different creature with only six legs and those beautiful wings. That's a miracle. And Christ being formed in, there, in them is, is like that word metamorphosis. It means Christ created them miraculously and made them into a new person. And old things are passed away and all things have become new. And if you keep living like the old world wants you to live and the old flesh wants you to live, you have a bad testimony and everyone will question your testimony and whether you're born again or not. Because it doesn't say some things are passed away and some things have become new. It says all things. Old things are gone and all things become new. I always question someone when they say, oh, I'm a Christian. Great. I witness to people. Give out tracts. And people say, oh, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. Really? Where do you go to church? Well, I haven't gone to church in years. I got offended at church and I quit years ago. Oh. By the way, if you find that perfect church, you know the old expression, don't join it because you'll ruin it. <laughs> We're a bunch of imperfect people here. We're trying, but we're far short. And when you think you're something, you're nothing. And God's going to bring you down. He's going to have something come out in your life that's going to humiliate you, embarrass you. And people will see that you're just really a human being with struggles like the rest of us struggle. So he says, Christ formed in you. Christ began to change them. He formed them into a different person. He said, I desire to be present with you now and to change my tone, my voice, my tone of voice, for I stand in doubt of you. I'm so perplexed by you. What is wrong with you? I travel and preach to churches. I have some in summertime. I'm not having to, but there's churches I've gone to that one time were great churches. And you preach there and man, they were excited about the Lord and now you go into them and they're dead. They stopped doing some things, started doing some other things. Instead of trying to conform to the image of Christ, they try to conform to the world. And you're like, what has happened to this church? That's how Paul felt. What's happened to you? 
And we're not going to preach verse five today. We're going to pick up here next week. But what does he say in verse chapter five, verse one? I meant, I meant chapter five, verse one. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty where it's Christ has made you free. You don't have to be circumcised. You're free. You're free. Don't take the yoke of the world on you, the yoke of false doctrine. Under the law, it was illegal to take a donkey and an oxen to put them in a yoke. Why? It wouldn't make any sense. The oxen's strong and steady, and the donkey's fast and unsteady and undependable. And he uses that as an example to teach us the principle of not yoking with the world. My cousin, wonderful guy, Christian, started an accounting business, and he signed a contract with a guy who wasn't a believer, and boy, did it cost him. Guy stole all kinds of money. The partnership ended, and he was heartbroken. And he said to me, I won't ever do that again. I won't yoke up with an unbeliever. And, and some of you maybe are yoked in situations you can't get out of the yoke, but don't yoke with unbelievers. We're not to yoke up with sin. We're not to yoke up with the law. You know what Jesus said? Take my yoke upon you. Yoke up with me. I'm meek and lowly. Not arrogant. Not difficult. And Jesus, the Rose of Sharon. That's who we yoke up with. And that wonderful Savior of ours who came lowly and rode on a donkey and was humiliated on the cross will one day come again. You know, I was praying here on the way to church this morning. And you know what I prayed? Come, Lord Jesus. I want to get out of this place. But if there's someone else that needs to be saved, have them cross my path. But come, Lord Jesus, I want it to all end. I want to leave this world. Boy, that's going to be some trip, isn't it? Yoke up with Jesus. He's worthy. He's worth it all. If you're not a Christian, yoke up with him. If you're a Christian, cut the yoke. Cut the yoke with the world. Your associations and friendships that are hindering your walk. I used to, years ago, when I worked in the secular world, I always had people who would come up and always try to befriend me. And sometimes they would say things to me or and the, things would happen that would just kind of hinder my walk. And I, I started to realize as a young Christian, I'm going to have to get away from that relationship. It's harmful to me. It's destructive to me. And, and sometimes it's even someone who says, oh, I'm a Christian. And everything they do hinders you. And you have to speak up and stand up and say, you know, I'm sorry. But, you know, our friendship is not constructive in my life. And you have to find a way to just kind of avoid that relationship. And you have to cut the yoke. Sometimes you're yoked with sin or the law. You've got to cut the yoke. And yoke with Jesus. He's meek and lowly. Let's pray. God, thank you for the cross. For Jesus. Thank you for a yoke that we can yoke up with you and you'll pull us when we can't pull the load. And that as being yoked with you, we'll draw closer to you because we're yoked with you. We'll be more like you. We'll walk in step with you. And our steps are ordered by you. Lord, help us to yoke with Jesus. And with heads bowed and eyes closed, is there anyone here who will raise their hand and say, I'm not a believer. I've never trusted Jesus Christ. Anyone here like that, slip your hand up. All right. If that's the case and you don't want to raise your hand, be sure 
and repent of your sins and trust Jesus. Thank you, God, for today as I felt your presence here and I felt you leading in the message and I ask you to just continue to bless and help us to take the word out of this place, share it with others in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing.